year was 2016, and I was sent to the Executive Leadership Council's Strategic Pathways Leadership Week seminar. And as you know, if you've read the book, No Thanks, Seven Ways to Say, I'll just include myself, or if you've heard me speak, this was a turning point in my life. In fact, some of you have gone as far as calling this my origin story because those series of meetings and sessions there in South Florida would have such an impact on me personally. And as much as I've talked about what happened in that room, I have mentioned that there were 250 other extraordinary women in the room. About 30 of them stayed connected. In fact, there was a woman named Diana Allen who had the idea when we were out on the yacht after everything was over and they were sharing with us what life could look like with all of the beautiful houses in Miami and jetting around on a yacht of all things. That party was awesome. But she had the idea on that evening cruise to start a group chat among us. This was seven years ago, 2016. And here we are today. In fact, Diana, I owe a big thanks to because of her. I stayed connected with about 15 of those women. And we're still very close today. In fact, Diana called me while she was in the midst of working on her doctorate sometimes frustrated, sometimes elated, because what she was working on was related to the topics that I explore in leadership, especially around women, women of color, especially Black women, and their experiences in corporate America and in business. She delves very deeply on the topic of sponsorship in her doctoral thesis. And she had to work her way around because her first doctoral thesis chairman was not on board. I invited her on the show so she could tell a little bit about her research, which is intriguing. And I love it because it takes us beyond all the table talk. You know, let's get a seat at the table. Let's build our own table. Let's create our own table. You've heard it all. But the fact is that the Gen X women that I speak to have been in the room for a while. They're trying to get to the room, behind the room. Those tables that are absolutely exclusive. But what happens between the time they get in the room and trying to get to that next room, that's what we want to explore. I have today empowerment champion and senior cybersecurity expert, doctor, Diana Allen today in a two-part series. You'll hear part one today. You'll hear part two after my book is released. Yes, please. Seven ways to say I'm entitled to the C-suite because her research and insights have made it into my book. So you're going to have to wait for that one. But until then, here's part one. And then make sure that you subscribe to TCSP after the show and duets because our conversation continues. Let's get it. 
Hey y'all, this is Culture Soup, where tech, culture, and business collide. It's a podcast that spoons up everything hot from social media. I'm your host, L. Michelle Smith, and each episode, we bring you some of the most notable and not yet notable thought leaders in tech, business, and culture. Hey, everybody. I am so excited. This is a very special day because seven years ago, I met Dr. Diana B. Allen at the Executive Leadership Council Strategic Pathways Leadership Week. And you know what? We're still friends. We're closer than we've ever been. In fact, I was in D.C. in the December time frame and had a wonderful dinner. Do you remember, Diana? I do. It was awesome. Yeah. So I bring my coaching community uh, together in different cities when I travel. And Diana was one of those those faces that showed up and just made the night incredible, an incredible night of community. Diana is an empowerment champion and she is a senior cybersecurity expert. I'm so excited to have Diana here. Diana, how are you doing? I'm wonderful. Thanks for having me. I'm so, I'm overjoyed. First of all, I am proud of you. Let me just tell the good people, okay? (laughs) I met her seven years ago. She was doing amazing already. And she was having little ones. She got two little ones at home now. Age what and what? Uh, Five and 18 months. Five and eight. See, we got Mm -hmm. a little bitty bambino. Yeah. But she's a bobbler. That's what I like to call a bobbler. Between (laughs) toddler and baby. Yeah, she's running yeah, she's the house. A she's a sweetheart. But let me tell y'all what she did during the time that she was having babies. She got her PhD, y'all. And what's your PhD in? And what's the specialty? So I have a doctorate of management and organizational leadership uh-huh. from the University of Phoenix. So can you see how birds of a feather kind of flock together? Now we're going to talk about what Diana studied during her doctorate. Okay, and the research that she did, which is amazing, it actually adds to the conversation. Let me just tell you, I am one to call out a lot of these studies that are very popular that come out year over year. I won't name any names, but that do not add to the conversation that only repeat what we already know. And you know what? That's so 2000 and what, 15 I mean, Diana, you can speak to this because it used to be, oh, they gave us a voice. But now it's like, come on. Yes. Absolutely. So I think that part of the discussion we've been seeing over the past few years is, you know, black girl magic, women empowerment. Let's get a seat at the table. If you don't have a seat, bring your own chair. choose to participate in the dialogue, be in the room. And so I've had the benefit of working for some really large organizations, you know, Fortune 10, Fortune 50 organizations, and being in different rooms, just especially being in tech, um, having a strong writing background that gives you access to a lot of different spaces. And sometimes what I saw was not a presence, a lack of presence, but it was really um, a lack of a voice. So you you get to come in the room and you sit right there and don't say anything. Uh, because you're here. You're just, you should feel lucky enough to be in the room. And I've also heard some different perspectives that if you're in the room, you have an obligation to use your voice. And what I think is a challenge is sometimes people don't have the option. So I chose to study it 
in my doctoral program. And the interesting thing is how uh, the doctorate that I received is different than a PhD or different types of degrees. So doctor of management, doctor of business administration, EDDs, which is doctor of education, they're all practitioner doctorates. So you need to actually be working in the field and your topic is not building on another body of research, which is what PhDs um, or psych Ds are based off of. Yours is supposed to be looking at a real life problem and potential real solutions that can be implemented in the field. And so my study was based on how empowerment and sponsorship, because it's different than mentorship, impacts women as they try to ascend in career-related roles, in STEM-related roles. When you told me what you were studying and you were researching, and we've been on the phone a couple times because you were going through it, because it was a journey, uh -huh. wasn't it? It was. Yes, but you finally made it. But you know, but before we get too deeply into the research, how about we have a culture soup moment? Absolutely. So, speaking of women, you know, that's my sweet spot too. <laughs> I watched online and also in the news media as women in the workplace ebbed and tithed when it came to job numbers. So when you got into lockdown and just a little bit afterwards, we started to see where women's numbers in jobs were plummeting. I mean, women were leaving the workplace in droves mm -hmm. and mainly they were uh, espousing that to the fact that so much of the caretaking was falling on us when it came to the home. But now fast forward to 2023, jobs numbers are back. Not only have women recovered in the workplace, but they're joining the workforce faster than men, according to the jobs numbers that the U.S. government puts out. But there's a little something different. Many of these women are making their choices. They aren't just going for the traditional jobs that they might. They're looking at other opportunities. Some of them are returning to the same workplace where they were. Are you seeing this? And what's your take on everything? I think it's definitely prevalent. I will say, and I can speak from my own personal experience, I transitioned roles during the pandemic. Mm. Not once, not twice, three times. And I think I found a perfect sweet spot for where I am. Some of it was due to COVID related roles. I think um, I think I shared this with you. My father passed away in 2020 in mm. relation to COVID. And one of the greatest things I can say about my dad is my dad lived life to the fullest. Sometimes mm. to my mother's frustration, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and he, you know, I, I recognized in that time I was kind of comfortable. I wasn't living to my full potential. I wasn't doing what I wanted to do. I was just kind of going with the flow because I'd been there for some time. I was, you know, I, I had, a, I had an, a, I had a, a routine, right? And it's just, it made me think about some things in a different way. And so I transitioned. Uh, onboarding to a company virtually is a very interesting and challenging dynamic. And so I think, especially as we look at this virtual world and hybrid work environment, that's something that organizations need to think about as well. But I did that and I had a great run working in FinTech for a little bit, sharing that, but I really missed the cyber aspect yeah. of it. And so you said it in the intro, cyber, I, I'm a risk, I know, I understand risk, I understand privacy, but I wanted to get back to cyber. 
And so I chose to transition to a larger organization that a girlfriend of mine suggested, and that's where I landed. And so one of the, the interesting thing is I transitioned, as you mentioned, having a baby. So I had a baby in 2021 and she's amazing, but no one knew that I was pregnant. It was something you know, I was interviewing from here up. Well, yeah, you were on screen. And, um, and so I think that with that transition, I avoided a, a few things that even came up in my research. The motherhood penalty mm-hmm. is what it's called. And, and the contrast to that is the fatherhood praise. Like, oh, my God, you had a baby versus, oh, my goodness, you had a baby. And so that impacted women. But the, the gap for people to homeschool, for us to figure out what was going on with bouts of COVID in our household has also, what's not being reported yet, it's causing a wage gap a wider wage gap and wage issues. So I think the next piece that you'll be seeing in the research or seeing in the reports is not just that women are transitioning to jobs, new companies, new roles. You're going to start to see analysis of the wage gap and the wage earnings. And if that motherhood penalty or that slight break has impacted the socioeconomic status of households. Wow. Well, and you know, my book came out during the pandemic. So many people did things that were different from what they were typically. And there's something to what happens to us psychologically. Absolutely. During extraordinary change. So let's talk about this research because it's so needed. And I hope it gets a lot of shine because it moves the conversation forward. Like I said, that's so important. So you, you, started out and I want to talk about the run-up to it because originally while the study now is about women in general you had some other plans so tell me about what you set out to do and why you ended up where you are now so I set out to research the role of women of color in stem related roles right and I think and I went and has everything you you write in your dissertation or you write in your research or a journal has to be backed up by statistical evidence. And so I sought out to define women of color as women who were Asian, Black, Hispanic, or Latina. I left out Pacific Islander, Native American, and Indian descent. The reason being is that they're, when you look at census data, so I, I started with the census, Census Bureau data, that demographic, Pacific Islander, Native American, Indian, is 0.1%. And so it's not enough to be statistically relevant for me to know which one fell into which category of that 0.1%. So I had to exclude them. And so I sought out for to identify the impact of women who are Asian, Black, Latina, or Hispanic, and because they were larger demographics and I could identify, I could find women in those categories. And I chose women because I had greater access to women and I think it's it's under understudied. And so that was what I was aiming to do all the way up until, so I defended um, in the fall. So I, it was it, all the way up about a year. It took, it took some time. So from the start of my program in 2019, all the way through, that was the plan. And so once I got through I had all the research supporting, you know, how many women are in tech related roles. And so in STEM related roles and STEM is, you know, broader than just tech, but I, I sought that out. It came time for me to do recruitment and identify participants for the study 
and I struggled. I struggled mm -hmm. because, and it's 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 kind of an oxymoron. You knew you had to identify a real world problem based on the type of degree that I was getting, and you find a gap in the literature or a gap in the research. So I found that there is not a lot of information about women of color as this collective. So when, and I'll, I'll take a, a sidebar for a second. When you see research about uh, diverse women, white women are included in that population and they rarely bifurcate it based on race. So you're going to see a generality of women that are diverse, but you may not see something that's specific talking about the challenges and experiences of black women, right. Asian women, Hispanic women. Right. And so I delved into those elements to see what the if there were differences. And that's how I chose them as the initial population. But when you first started reaching out to women based on the segmentation that you set forth for your study, you hit some roadblocks. What were those? So in order to qualify for the study, you had to ha identify as a woman. You had to fall within the demographic. So be Black, uh, African-American or Black, Hispanic, Asian, or Latina. You also had to be in a leadership role, senior director or above, between the years of 2017 and 2021 with a, for a U.S.-based company that had at least 1,000 employees. So large organizations. U.S. based. <laughs> and so I went to LinkedIn. LinkedIn is the place to go. What I started to find is that I have tons of men in my network because I work in tech, but they are vice president of this, CISO of that, chief this, chief that. And then you find women and they're global head of technology, lead of infrastructure, global managing lead, I mean, they had a glow, you add global in front of it and it makes it seem really big. And so that made it really challenging because I had to put sample titles in the selection, right? So I, VP, senior director or equivalent or above. And so the challenges those organizations had senior directors and titles, but these people who were women did not have those titles. They had something else, which is a global lead, global head. Because what I started to do was look at the actual work that they did, which is amazing. And then you're doing a comparison. They were very hesitant. To, oh, I don't know if, if my, my experience qualifies or I don't have that title. Maybe you should talk to my manager. But their manager or their leadership, they didn't meet the criteria because most of them were not women. The first piece that you needed to do, to, you had to have to qualify. So if you don't mind me, I want to stop and review what we've said so far. One is that the women of color that you were trying to recruit for your research did not fit the qualification, meaning they didn't have the title and rank. Correct. The second thing I heard you say was, if they did, they were hesitant. Absolutely. And said, perhaps maybe my boss should do it. And it's two things happening there. One, they're deflecting. Two, their boss might not even be female. So what we have here really is it's inequity, but it very much paints the picture in detail of the middle of the leadership pipeline and women stuck at a certain level before they start exiting, pushed out, or by the way, pulled out because we talk about getting pulled out 
of the leadership pipeline in my upcoming book. Yes, please. Seven ways to say I'm entitled to the C-suite, but we'll talk about that later. (laughs) Pushed out, pulled out or otherwise left on their own. But you have these men with very succinct and direct titles and rank. And we've got these fuzzy titles for women. Correct. So I'm going to take a pause and share something I think that we talked about when we were in training way, way, way back in the day, right? We tend to get into roles and say, I don't care what they call me. Yes. Uh, as long as they pay me on time, as long as they pay me the type of money that I want to make, as Preach long as I am well compensated, I don't care. I'm not focused on titles because we're encouraged to be humble and, you know, all yes. of these things. And, and it's either or. Women. We never consider that it can be both and. Correct. And so two things on the spectrum can be true, right? I can be humble and I can be properly titled and ranked. So what tends to happen in those roles when you have the, I don't care what they call me as long as they pay me appropriately. And as long as they pay me what I want is you miss certain elements that come in with that are granted with positional authority. And so that comes with access to certain rooms, participation in conversation, access to information. And so those are components of empowerment. I'm sure we'll get to it in the discussion, but that I think was a huge issue as well because certain certain rooms are restricted based off of level. And so when they make up this level in between where you should be and where you are, but you know, you're not a senior manager or you're not a director, but you're not a senior director, you're now a global lead of something in between that, which is something new that we've created just for you. Where does that put you in the overall hierarchy and pipeline? Right. And people will ask you those questions. You'll you'll have uh, VPs, officers that will ask you, okay, now what's your title? And then if it's something that does not compute, they will say, then I'll talk to your boss. And the other piece of that too, Diana, is when we do not negotiate title and salary, it impacts our career. It devastates it and puts us back further than our counterparts. Absolutely. So your earning potential diminishes because, you know, let's, let's be clear here. Those big hefty titles that Jim has, they came with a nice, nice package. Absolutely. And so interestingly, a part of my, and I'll, I'll delve into the research a little bit. So I interviewed several women, different fields. They were not all in tech and they span the gamut of race, age, marital status, status and child status. Mm-hmm. So all of those were, were relevant demographics in my study. And because they all came up in the discussion and the dialogue, because all of those intersectionalities met and formed a part of their experience that left an indelible mark on them. Mm-hmm. And so sponsors, and I think you've discussed this online and different and different um, discussion forums, but you have a series of career support, right? You have your at your your teammates, your allies, your mentors, your sponsors, right? You also have some others, like some advocates, some cheerleaders, sure. you have the, those, un, you know, like unofficial terms. But, and I'm going to talk specifically about women. And because my study wound up getting broadened out to include all women, so I had Caucasian women in my study as well, I can speak about the role that and the impact that happened to women as a whole. And to be clear, 
the reason why it was broadened was because of these factors we just discussed. Correct. I broadened okay. it so that I can have statistically relevant information and I identified correlations from there that was not based on race. It was based on gender. So I think that what we need to think about when you have sponsors and the spot, you get a sponsor. I want to be, um, I want to be a VP. Mm-hmm. Here's my sponsor. My sponsor is going to leverage his or her political capital going to help me get there. I get, I get to the room. Great. I'm in the room. Now what happens? Right. I think we are, you got to see it in the table. You got to see it in the room. So you, you know, see you later. That's it. Right. That's what tends to happen. And then if you pay attention because I, I, I'm a qualitative researcher, right? So I'm looking at trends and patterns. A year later, that person is transitioning to a new role. Sure. Or transitioning out. What I started to try, I, I, I researched was, are they empowered in their role? And what does that mean? And so um, I researched empowerment theory which was initially found in 1977 by Cantor. I can give you all of the stats and all of the people. Um, And I actually found that theoretical model because my initial dissertation chair said that race and gender have nothing to do with elevation and career. I remember that conversation. And um, he challenged me exponentially. And he was a white male and he was like, look, that don't talk about critical race theory. Don't talk about that. It doesn't, it's not true. It women leave the workforce voluntarily all the time. And he challenged me in some interesting ways that really it was super frustrating. He had a couple of points of view which were not necessarily wrong, they're just different. Um, from his point of view, he said if there are 10 women that are in a role that, that are there's there's an opportunity, there are 10 women, and only seven of them are qualified. Seven women are qualified, so you push three out. Two of them are not interested at all because it doesn't align with their career goals. Now we're down to what, five, right? How many do you suppose that we add to the organization? All five? He said, now that's an oversaturation. How many is enough? And so perhaps he was coming from a qualitative, a quantitative stance, but he did not think that there was a tie between the two. He left out the nuance. There's always nuance. Of course. And you know what? Let's step back for a second because Mm -hmm. you said something else. Let's go back to this table. And this is what I find problematic about the popular, I'll call it popular internet dialogue Mm -hmm. on this particular topic about getting a seat at the table. And typically, I feel the ones that are saying this in in respect to corporate America, Mm -hmm. okay, probably haven't been in enough rooms to know what can go down when you're actually at the table. Correct. Um, For instance, I really believe, especially women who are in the middle, mid-career, meaning they have 10, 15, 20 years, Mm -hmm. um, mid-range title, Mm -hmm. that we're already at the table. Oftentimes. We're in the rooms. Oftentimes, but it's yeah. what happens when you're in that room. If you come in there with a, you know, mushy, squishy title, see how it goes down, right? If right. you don't have the executive presence because no one has afforded you 
you know, the opportunity to go to a strategic pathways to learn about these things and how it's culturally nuanced for even us and what code it can mean. You don't really know how it can go down. So we have to be prepared, not just to be at the table, be in the room, but be prepared about what to do when you're in that room, being prepared and then try to get to that, that boardroom behind that room where the decisions are being made. Yes. So terms like succession don't go over our heads or we don't even hear them. Absolutely. Or um, what's the other word that I love so much? Calibration. I think calibration, consensus, situational awareness. Yes. There are tons of things that are that are challenging. And so what I will share with you is I think that the role of sponsor, the role of a sponsor does not end when you get to the position. I think that the role of a sponsor and their power and influence, at least for a little while, is to help you be successful when you get to the position. And that's where empowerment comes in. And so empowerment, and some people believe that it's not given or taken away and all of those things. There are some theories. but. Empowerment has two elements, right? There's a structure, there's structural empowerment and there's psychological empowerment. Psychological empowerment has to do with you, you, your values align with the organization. You believe you can do a good job. You feel good about the work that you're doing. You have confidence, right? So you don't, you don't, you don't suffer too much from imposter syndrome. You, you're really excited. So psychological empowerment, that's one component. But structural empowerment is a bit different. And so structural empowerment has to do with access information, Mm -hmm. resources, and support. And so that is definitely within a leader and or a sponsor's control. So what tends to happen to women? So when I was mentioning the example of the table, so now I'm in this role, I'm here, I'm in the room, and folks are like, all right, Al Michelle, you made it to the room. Good seeing you, good job. Now you're you're one of us. That's a lie, it's not true. It's not true. So what tends to happen is, we have several, several challenges as women in the, we have the glass ceiling, the glass cliff, the, the glass floors, the concrete ceiling, the bamboo ceiling. There's all types of entrapment around us, depending on where you fall. But I'll give you a few scenarios and examples and you can nod and tell me if you're familiar with them. You come, someone comes into an organization and they're given six months to put together Uh, to make some strides on a project or an activity, something that's been stale or something that hasn't made movement. And they give it to Mm -hmm. the new woman in the role. Mm -hmm. However, their male counterpart has gotten 16 months to do something similar, but you have six. Mm -hmm. That is a lack of structural empowerment. You don't have the adequate amount of time to accomplish similar results. You don't get the ramp up time, the adoption curve, all of that. Mm Another thing that's a real life example of a lack of structural empowerment is authority. So you're a vice president. I'm a vice president, but we're different vice presidents. I have headcount. You don't. You want headcount and you want to hire, but you have to go through this mysterious committee of people that have to approve and review and give you authority and all of these things so that you can hire. So now you have work that is where you need six people to do it or Mm -hmm. four people to do it. And there are there is you and one other person. And so 
that's a severe limitation where your sponsor, who should be a person of influence, should be able to see those things and be able to say, hey, Jim, hey, John, hey, Diana doesn't have the same amount of time. Who, who yes. could do that in eight months? Provide the mandate and tell their peers. Correct. You need to work with her in making sure that she has what she needs. People and processes. Cut the crap. Give her the budget. Why are you binding her hands? Yes. What's going on? And they'll say those things and break down those walls and barriers. And so that was something that was very prevalent amongst my participants was that sponsors were able to give them tough love at times and work on the back end to make sure that those things that were happening were removed, those barriers. What an awesome conversation with Dr. Diana B. Allen, senior cybersecurity expert and empowerment champion for especially women in tech. You know, I have a couple speaking ops coming up very soon. April 4th with the Executive Leadership Council, I'll be hosting a workshop at their Power of Women at Work. And it's all about ways that you can advocate for your sisters in male-dominated spaces. Again, that's April 4th. You can go to elcinfo.com to register. And it's open to any woman of color who is high-performing and excellent. It helps to have somebody sponsor you in too. Also, I'll be in Pittsburgh in May at the Opera Conference while I will be facilitating their opening plenary. It's a panel on how work has changed in the arts industry, but especially in opera and how we will move forward in this current cultural and social and economic context. Finally, you know about the book. It's coming in June. Yes, please. Seven ways to say I'm entitled to the C-suite. The launch crew is already on fire. And you have to know that this launch crew also becomes the book club. But there's some perks along the way. These ladies and gentlemen are getting pre-reads. They're getting excerpts. They're also, they voted on the cover. Yes, I get feedback from this group. They're also going to get gear and all of it's free. So listen, you want to be a part of this book club because for nine weeks, I meet with this group for absolutely free. We dig into the book. I do some reading and I also give you some backstory. You want to be a part. So go to my website, lmichellesmith.com, pull down coaching and look for Slaynet. Join. Okay. It's free. Join. And then look for the Yes Please Launch Crew Tribe. Click there and join. If you want to know more about Yes Please, seven ways to say I'm entitled to the C-suite, go to lmichellesmith.com slash yes please. Pre-order will happen in May. Find us online at theculturesoup.com, on Instagram and Twitter at The Culture Soup, and on Facebook at The Culture Soup Podcast. Until next time. The Culture Soup Podcast is a production of No Size Communication, LLC. The Culture Soup Podcast is a registered trademark of No Silos Communications, LLC.